This is an ABC podcast. As we go to air tonight, Ukraine is under full-scale Russian assault. President Vladimir Putin ignored last-minute pleas for diplomacy and launched his military assault on several Ukrainian cities. Explosions rang out before dawn in the cities of Kyiv, Kharkiv and Odessa, followed by air sirens. Twelve months ago, Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. And in our last episode, we looked at the military story, how Ukraine fought back and why Russia's invasion went so spectacularly wrong. In this revision with me, Annabel Quince, the political story, how the conflict has reshaped the political landscape of Europe and NATO, its impact on Central Asia and the Nordic states, and how Western sanctions have accelerated changes in Russia's foreign policy. Let's begin in Europe, where the invasion has led to cracks within the European Union between Western Europe, particularly France and Germany, and the former Soviet states of Central and Eastern Europe. Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Slovenia. Well, essentially, the European Union, economically and politically, has always been dominated by the Franco-German relationship. France and Germany are the two biggest economies in the European Union, and they have always dominated the political scene in Brussels. Dr. André, and I am a senior researcher at the Wilfred Martin Centre for European Studies. The position of the Central and Eastern European countries was very difficult politically. They had joined as relatively poor countries about 20 years ago, and as a result, they were still, they are still net beneficiaries of the EU budget. So in effect, they put in less money than they take out. And that creates its own kind of dynamic in Brussels, where it can be very hard for these countries to really state their cases, state their priorities. But in the months before the invasion last year, Eastern and Central European countries were warning Brussels of the Russian threat. Were they listened to? No, no, absolutely not. And I think the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, who is German, acknowledged this in her big annual State of the Union address to the European Parliament a couple of months ago in September 2022. She acknowledged that Brussels and the Western capitals should have listened to Central and Eastern European countries a lot more. And I think that comes down to the fact that the Central and Eastern European countries didn't have the confidence yet in Brussels to fully push their opinions, both because they were net beneficiaries of the EU budget, but also I think we have to remember, and again, this is some, sometimes something we forget in Western Europe, is that these Central and Eastern European states are relatively new states. They only became independent in the early to mid-1990s. So they're still relatively early into their state building processes, etc. And it takes time to develop, you know, the diplomatic, the economic and the political expertise, particularly in a place like Brussels, to really push your priorities and to get what you think across. After weeks of warnings, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has begun. Russia's President Vladimir Putin has cast aside international condemnation to launch the attack in eastern Ukraine. In Central and Eastern Europe, there was a very cohesive and solidarity-driven approach to helping Ukraine. 
Poland is the biggest economy in Eastern Europe, but also it has a long history of attracting Ukrainians into their labor market. So immediately following the invasion, you had floods of Ukrainian refugees flooding into multiple Central and Eastern European countries. Central and Eastern European countries were very quick in providing Ukraine with whatever military equipment and supplies that they could furnish immediately. And that happened from day one. Diplomatic efforts to defuse the conflict over Ukraine have ramped up. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, flew into Moscow for talks with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. How are you? Fine, just fine. How are you? In comparison to the Western European countries, there was, it was almost like shock and disbelief. There's a feeling, certainly in Central and Eastern Europe, that President Macron lost a lot of credibility with his repeated attempts to talk peace with President Putin even after the war had begun. While I think Germany is in the middle of a pretty profound shift at the moment in terms of supporting and supplying arms to Ukraine. So yes, I think there was a, a fundamental difference between Eastern and Western Europe's response. And I'm wondering if that has given greater confidence to Eastern and Central Europe and a bit more influence, at least in terms of military strategy and things. Well, I think the conflict in Ukraine has given Central and Eastern European countries a higher profile, more confidence and a more prominent positioning at a Brussels level that they have not experienced since they joined about 20 to 25 years ago. So the question now is that will that prominence or confidence be maintained? I think militarily the impact will be long lasting and significant because I think militarily what it has done for Central and Eastern European countries, it has kind of renewed their faith and belief in NATO as the guarantor of peace and security in Central and Eastern Europe. So that in turn has renewed their connection with not just NATO, but with the United States and the broader Western alliance. So they very much now view NATO as being absolutely integral to Central and Eastern European security. Politically, I would hope that the confidence we have seen from Eastern European diplomats, particularly of the smaller countries of the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, I hope that that will continue in the future. I think it probably will just because President Macron's calculation of trying to bring Putin to peace turned out to be so misjudged that it's broadly acknowledged now. So I think in the future we will see kind of a more confident and a Central and Eastern Europe that is better able to state its case in Brussels. It wasn't just Central and Eastern Europe who turned to NATO. Within weeks of the Russian invasion, both Sweden and Finland applied for NATO membership. Sweden and Finland are edging closer to joining NATO, precisely the opposite of what Vladimir Putin hoped for when he launched his aggression against Ukraine. Finland has said this afternoon that it's in favour of applying for NATO membership, paving the way for the alliance to expand towards Russia's border. Sweden, right next door to Finland, is expected to decide on joining NATO in the coming days. For Sweden, the question is somewhat more ideological than for Finland. Sweden had this narrative of 200 years of neutrality, 
that they didn't participate in wars as a conflict party since the Napoleonic Wars. My name is Minna Olander and I am a research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in Helsinki. For Sweden, it was also to an extent connected with Finland. Being neighboring countries and Finland sharing a very long border with, with Russia or in the Cold War, the Soviet Union, the idea was that Sweden couldn't leave Finland alone as the only military non-aligned country in this region. Then after the Cold War, both countries just felt that joining NATO was not necessary, but both did cooperate very closely with NATO. Russia shares a border with Finland that stretches more than 1,300 kilometres, meaning this deal puts NATO right on her doorstep. I'm pleased to announce that we now have an agreement for Finland and Sweden to join NATO. In Finland, the public opinion changed basically overnight. Only three days after the, the invasion started, Russia marched into Ukraine. There was an opinion poll in Finland with the first time a majority for NATO membership. And then the numbers kept rising. And actually, it was very interesting because it became kind of a bottom-up process so that the political parties and the leadership had to kind of catch up with the public opinion. For Sweden, it was quite a big surprise that the Finnish public opinion changed so swiftly but Sweden also managed to catch up with Finland and then the membership applications were handed in in Brussels to NATO on the 18th of May. So that was less than three months after the invasion started. NATO's open door policy has been an historic success. Welcoming Finland and Sweden into the alliance will make them safer, NATO stronger and the Euro-Atlantic area more secure. Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg announcing an expansion of the 70-year-old military alliance from 30 members to 32. Finland has a very remarkable reserve army. Finland has a population of 5.5 million, but has a total reserve of 870,000. So that's almost one-fifth of the population. And the wartime strength is 280,000 troops, which is an extraordinary number for a European country. Sweden went along with this Western European trend of scaling down its armed forces, so it has notably smaller troops, 55,000 in total at this moment. But Sweden also, for example, reintroduced conscription, partial conscription system in 2017 and has been scaling up its armed forces and, and capabilities ever since. Also, Swedish territory is just very important in the middle of the, the Nordic-Baltic region. It makes it very important for military mobility in the region, for security of supply of other allies. Just Swedish territory is already a big win for NATO. So Finland and Sweden both are definitely net security contributors to NATO. With the emerging rift between Central and Eastern Europe with Western Europe, where will Sweden and Finland sit politically in NATO and the EU? I would say that actually Finland and Sweden, now they are definitely much more aligned with the Baltic states, Poland, like the Central and Eastern European states, which is a very interesting development that the Nordics have also definitely, they have a much stronger sense of urgency in supporting Ukraine and they feel this threat posed by Russia much more closely. Obviously, Finland does have more than 1,300 kilometers border with Russia, so it's obvious that the threat is felt here in a different way than in France or Germany. Finland is a particularly interesting example because Finland used to be a very close partner of Germany especially, and now there's definitely this process of 
re-evaluating that relationship and partnership. For Finland, it's been quite incomprehensible how Germany has completely scaled down its defense capabilities and not had any, almost no risk management and foresight in its energy policy and in general with, in dealings with Russia and how it could get to this point where Germany's armed forces are in such a bad shape. But whether this will have a longer term impact on some kind of a power shift from France and Germany to further to the maybe, let's say, northeastern Europe, that still remains to be seen. But it's definitely possible that the smaller European Union member states will from now on start scrutinizing more closely, for example, German positions in the EU and reconsidering whether it's really in their interest to jump behind the German position. Apart from the political and military shifts, have there been other changes in Europe due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I think in certain sectors, the shift has been absolutely unprecedented. The European shift away from Russian energy imports, oil and gas, has been unprecedented. I think over the last 12 months, we've seen EU imports reduced by at least 75 to 80 percent in terms of Russian energy. And that is a, a shift away that will certainly continue. And it will also be matched by a, a renewed focus on developing clean, renewable energies within the European Union. I also think that the Russian conflict has stimulated a renewed understanding of the need for increased military spending in the EU, particularly at member state level. So I think we've already seen most member states significantly increase their military spending. And I think also there will be moves economically and politically to further consolidate, to further attempt to move more powers to an EU level. But I think certainly in the areas of energy and defence, very fundamental, permanent, long-term shifts have occurred at European Union level. Sitting to the southeast of Russia are the former Soviet states known collectively as Central Asia. What impact has the invasion had on them and how much influence does Russia still have in the region? Central Asia consists of five countries of varying prosperity. So Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. My name is Peter Leonard and my formal title is I'm the Central Asia editor for Eurasianet. When you go to the poorer end of the spectrum, there the influence that Russia has is very immense indeed because hundreds of thousands of people from those small and poor countries work in Russia and send back billions of dollars back to their home country every year. So the importance of Russia to the economies of those places is, uh, as I say, very hard to underestimate. But even the larger and wealthier countries have long-standing strategic economic alliances with Russia. And while their dependence on Russia may not be as absolute as in the case of places like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, they are nevertheless very deep. So what has been the response of the nations within Central Asia to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine? The initial response of Central Asian governments following the invasion was one of very studied 
wariness. They certainly weren't supporting the invasion, but they were also extremely careful not to openly criticise it. And that is, in my opinion, a, a clear reflection of the deep economic and military ties that Central Asia has with Russia. At the same time, we constantly pick up on these clues that all of the countries in their own little way, perhaps not all of the countries, but most of the countries in their little way are attempting to sort of back away from Russia, not so much to put a distance between themselves and Russia, but more to give themselves more options, let's put it that way. For instance, if we take the example of Kazakhstan, the largest, the richest of uh, the five countries of Central Asia, you see much more dialogue between Kazakhstan and Europe on trying to find alternative transit routes for getting goods from Kazakhstan to Europe, not having to go through Russia. Even we're seeing larger volumes of oil, which traditionally have gone from Kazakhstan through Russia into Europe. Now they're trying to find other alternative ways of getting oil onto the global market. Things like that, we tend to see much more. The Kazakhs, I think, would be wary about saying outright that uh, this is a direct consequence of the war, but anyone with eyes to see knows perfectly well that that is what is happening. I'm also wondering, with the influence that Russia's always had in the region, with suddenly its focus now somewhere else, basically trying to win the conflict in Ukraine, has that meant that it's actually opened the space for other players to push some kind of influence into the region? The start of the war in Ukraine has sharpened the mind of policymakers in Central Asia about the need to spread their bets, as it were. If previously it was the case that dependence on Russia was very strong and that they had a, a, a very transactional relationship with China, I think perhaps now they are increasingly looking, for instance, to South Asia. Again, you unfurl the map and you'll see that Central Asia is not just close to Russia and China, but it's just across the mountains from places like India and Pakistan. I mean, there's a small matter of Afghanistan being in the middle, but despite the change of the regime in Afghanistan, there is continued attention being paid to building important infrastructure like railroads and roads and pipelines through Afghanistan into South Asia. And so... The need to pursue that agenda, I think, is, is taking on uh, fresh urgency in light of the Ukrainian war. President Volodymyr Zelensky declaring 4,000 square kilometres of territory has been liberated since the beginning of the month. Those gains have emboldened Ukraine's forces to keep pushing back the Russian invaders. They were running like mice. They even shot one of their own who was wounded just to get away. Do you think there's also been a shift in terms of how these countries have perceived Russia? Because the difficulties Russia has had in terms of getting any kind of military success in Ukraine. When it comes to perceptions, there are two things here. One is a generational question, and then the other one is about distinguishing between elites and the general population. When I talk about generation, I mean that there's a whole cohort of people who grew up in the Soviet Union who learnt Russian. And for that older generation, the emotional closeness that a lot of people still feel to Russia by virtue of the Soviet legacy is still very strong for people who are, let's say, you know, older than 50 or 60. The younger you go, 
the more you'll tend to find people with far more hostile views towards Russia. There's much more talk these days about the urgent need for decolonization, for re-exploring the history of Central Asia to understand not just the positive, but also the very damaging legacies that Russian imperialism and then subsequently uh, Soviet domination had. So, the division between the generations, I think, is becoming much starker. And I think that the Ukrainian war has really kind of served to only show that in greater relief. If Russia were to lose whatever that might end up looking like, it's going to simply compound this generational shift that's going on in Central Asia. If there was ever that notion that, well, look, we may not really like the fact that our countries are so close to Russia and so closely tied to Russia, but really, what choice do we have? This is a powerful country that can dictate terms. If Russia is unable to force its will on Ukraine, then I think that increasingly the mindset is going to develop to say they couldn't even win that war. I mean, or they're going to dictate terms to us. We have China on our doorstep. We have India on our doorstep. We have large countries, Pakistan on our doorstep. We have Western Europe, which is uh, constantly trying to court us for our oil and our gas. Why would we continue to hitch our wagon to Russia? I think that that is pretty inevitable historical trend at this point. I suppose the only question is how quickly is this a matter of years or is it a matter of decades? I think that's kind of open to conjecture at this point. The West's response to the invasion were sanctions and cutting diplomatic ties with Russia. The American president, Joe Biden, is imposing sanctions to cripple Russia's biggest banks and weapons industry and hit Putin's cronies. The European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, says the EU will hold the Kremlin accountable with a package of sanctions that will have maximum impact on the Russian economy and the political elite. Russia responded by looking for alliances elsewhere, particularly to Turkey and Iran. Vladimir Putin made his second trip aboard to shore up Moscow's relations with both Turkey and Iran. Russia and Turkey have been close and working together because they actually operate in a number of conflicts where their interests might diverge, but they're both on the ground and so they have to sort of get along, talk with each other. My name is Hanna Notte and I'm a senior research associate with the Vienna Center for Disarmament and Nonproliferation based in Berlin. That applies to the Syrian conflict, where both have been deconflicting, running even joint patrols on the ground. Another conflict is Libya, where Turkey is present on the ground in support of the GNA, the government of national accord. Russia has a covert presence in Libya. Another one is the South Caucasus, the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. Russia has been historically a security ally of Armenia, whereas Turkey is very close to Azerbaijan and has been supporting Azerbaijan, arming Azerbaijan. And then, of course, both have important security interests in the Black Sea. So there's really different geographies where Russia and Turkey operate, where they need to deconflict, where their interests might diverge. But that's why they have been talking very closely in recent years. They have an important economic relationship. Russia, for instance, is building a nuclear power plant in Turkey, its first one, the Akuyu nuclear power plant. It's been selling hydrocarbons to Turkey. Russian tourists have been going to Turkey as a sort of prime destination in recent years. 
And now Turkey, since it has not joined sanctions against Russia, has become an important platform for Russian businesses to still continue to operate. The United States has been very concerned about Turkey facilitating Russian sanctions evasion and is watching that space very closely. A lot of Russians that fled Russia have moved to Turkey, have bought real estate in Turkey. So the economic relationship is is very complicated, very rich. Both sides benefit from it. And then the last thing I would point out here, which is incredibly important, is that Russia, even though it has its problems and divergences with Turkey, sees it as very beneficial to keep Turkey close because Turkey is a NATO ally. So to keep Turkey close and to perhaps try to foster some friction between Turkey and its other NATO allies is very beneficial to Russia in this context of geopolitical confrontation that Russia sees itself with vis-a-vis NATO. Ukraine and the White House say dozens of Iranian-made drones are being used by Russia to target energy infrastructure. I want to point out Iran here, with which Russia has been building close ties for many years. But what's now happening is that Russia is getting battlefield support from Iran, which is an unprecedented phenomenon. It's relied a lot on Iranian drones for use in Ukraine in recent months. There is the concern that Iran could even supply surface-to-surface missiles to Russia. So that kind of relationship, in a sense, is becoming important to Russia because it helps Russia sustain its war effort. But it also comes at a high cost for Moscow. This is now a relationship that used to be more of a sort of patron-client relationship where Moscow could dictate the terms to Tehran. That is now changing. Iran is gaining in leverage, obviously, vis-a-vis Russia. It may now demand weapons and other support from Russia that Russia didn't provide in previous years, mindful of objections from Israel, from the Arab states of the Persian Gulf. So there's talk of Iran now getting fighter jets from Russia in coming months. And of course, this will also come at a risk for Russian diplomacy, which has always tried to walk this tightrope walk between mutually antagonistic players in the Middle East. So it's really a mixed balance sheet. What about Russia's relationship with other non-Western states? Are these states likely to support Russia or Ukraine and its Western allies? I don't think we can completely undermine Russia's efforts to cement its position with non-Western states. This idea that we could get those countries to cut ties with Russia, I don't think is going to work. There's complex reasons for why states in the so-called non-West, if we want to call it that, have not supported sanctions against Russia, have not cut ties with Russia. If we look at the Middle East, for example, there's a perception that this war in Ukraine isn't really about the rules-based international order. They don't see it the way that we see it. They don't even necessarily see it as a Russian war of aggression. The idea that NATO or the West carries responsibility for this war is fairly widespread, and we need to be quite clear-eyed about that. There's also grievances about supposed Western double standards in reacting to this war. You know, people saying Western societies have gotten so mobilized over the war in Ukraine, but over the Palestinians' plight, over the war in Yemen, over the war in Syria... That wasn't the same. And so there's these perceptions. Perceptions of Russia are different, of Russian actions are different. Countries have interests 
with and vulnerabilities vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And so I don't think the West is going to get those countries to simply drop relations with Russia or China for that matter. You know, countries understand that we are in a multipolar world in which the West is just one important pillar. They think they cannot afford to just put all their eggs in one basket and be firmly with the West. And so I think we have to accept that fundamental reality and then work creatively, depending on the issue, depending on the institution, to try to still get things done. Outvoting Russia, circumventing Russia, and perhaps still compartmentalizing with Russia and trying to find sort of the lowest common denominator with Moscow on certain issues. Hannah Notter, Senior Research Associate with the Vienna Centre for Disarmament and Nonproliferation. My other guests, Peter Leonard, Central Asia Editor, Eurasianet. Mina Olander, Research Fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. And Owen Dray, Senior Researcher at the Wilford Martin Centre for European Studies. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.